That's the sound of police in Washington, D.C. getting overwhelmed by a mob summoned by Donald Trump. The security footage shown to the Senate this week of cops facing down rioters armed with baseball bats, some in full body armour, many apparently combat trained, makes uncomfortable viewing for anybody who thinks America is going back to normal anytime soon. Hi, I'm Paul Mason, journalist, Marxist, anti-fascist and in this episode of How to Stop Fascism, I'm going to do an update on what we know about the events of 6-1, that's 6th of January at Capitol Hill, and look at the confusion arising on parts of the left over what do we do about it. Because there are people saying the Capitol Hill riot wasn't really that serious, it was all cosplay, it can't really be described as a coup attempt as we would normally describe it. There are people worried about calling for the state to repress the fascists because obviously for decades the main role of the state in the USA is to rep repress black people and organised labour and social justice movements. And there's an undercurrent of resistance to joining the dots between Trump and the GOP, the Republican Party, and the far right. And there's a reason for that because political science theory says authoritarian conservatism right-wing populism and fascism are different things and here we've got them all acting together so what's going on unfortunately though these are interesting questions uh, we've also got voices on the far right they're saying hey we just found out that the cops are insanely violent and that the billionaires we've been following and listening to don't give a crap about us so some people are saying on the right Let's get the far left and the far right together to unite to bring down the system. That's been a sub-theme of many of the channels since the implications and the failure of the uh, coup attempt uh, have begun to pan out. As we will see, this exact thought occurred to the original Nazis and the response of the German Communist Party in the 30s under Stalinist control was pretty similar to people like uh, left-wing US comedian Jimmy Dore who's been saying hey the Boogaloo boys are misunderstood maybe we have things in common with them working people are being brutalized people are alienated disillusioned people know they've been abandoned by their government and how do we talk to them is the left going to turn into Hillary Clinton and call them deplorables and discard them Instead of demonizing people because they don't hold the exact same well, set in stone ideology. that is the very strategy that opened the door to Hitler. So let's not follow it. Let's remember, whatever the differences between now and then, the German working class could have stopped Hitler, but their leaders were in thrall to a bunch of political theories about fascism that were wrong. And because the insurgent right is not going away for the next four years, we have to learn the lessons of that. Let's start with the evidence that's emerged since the Capitol Hill riot. It consists of more detailed timelines, the background on what Trump was doing, new video evidence and federal prosecution documents about those indicted. From these, I think we can draw five more definite conclusions. First, 
that Trump seriously did intend to overthrow the election result and remain in office. He signals this from the summer of 2020 by creating the narrative of the untrustworthy postal votes and repressing the votes via the Postal Service. From the night of the election, he begins the Stop the Steal narrative. He tries, with the collusion of 126 lawmakers and 19 states, to invalidate the election through the Texas lawsuit. He fails at the Supreme Court. He tries until the very end to get the Department of Justice to overturn the Georgia election, and we know no, he was trying elsewhere. And when that all failed, he summoned a mob to Washington, told them to march on Congress and to fight. Second, this wasn't mere rhetoric or indirect incitement. It's clear now that Trump's operation and family indirectly financed the rally that led to the storming of the legislature. So this is not rhetorical. He paid for it. Third, some of the people who took part in the invasion had paramilitary training, were armed and had intent, as revealed by their messaging, to stage a 1776-style insurrection and start a civil war. The prosecution documents against the 26 people charged so far with conspiracy show that for some, and the allegations here focus on the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, the violence was premeditated and justified by what Trump was saying about the election and his cause for action. Remember, since the very moment in the debates where Trump said, Proud Boys stand back and stand by, they stood back, but they were standing by. Fourth, through it all, a small number of Republican lawmakers went actively beyond encouragement and colluded with the attempt to violently stop the confirmation of the Electoral College vote. But the wider Republican Party and its political culture had begun to accommodate far-right violence for well more than a year. With the standoff in Michigan involving militias invading the state capitol now looking like a clear precursor to what happened, Here's the New York Times, 8th of February 2021, quote, Prominent party members in Michigan formed bonds with militias or gave tacit approval to armed activists using intimidation in a series of rallies and confrontations around the state. So there's a pattern. Fifth conclusion. Of course, there was more than one psychological crowd. This is a term in behavioural science. There was more than one psychological crowd People went there for different reasons within the Capitol Hill mob. But there's a clear hardcore of military-trained, far-right-motivated, combat-clad people who led the break-in, some of whom are now charged with conspiracy, others with assault. Organisationally, surprise, surprise, the two focal points of the conspiracy investigation are the two standout brands of organised right-wing violence, which overlap the Oathkeeper Militia and the Proud Boys. Beyond that hardcore, there were, and I think this is important, there were recently radical MAGA people. So people who were in it not for a kind of fascist ideology that they thought through um, over a long period of time, but people whose central narrative is, of course, white racism, anti-Marxism, QAnon, etc., but that, who were actually there for Trump not for some bigger and more strategic fascist project. Many of them, I don't think, will be charged with conspiracy, 
but they are among the most dangerous and, and were on the day and seem to have been among the most violent. And of course beyond them there are the nerds and the onlookers taking selfies on their cell phones. Now these five evidential details for me provide a vivid illustration of the growing symbiosis between right-wing authoritarian populism in America and indeed elsewhere and the organised fascist and extreme right. So let's consider now how modern fascism works and how it interoperates with other forces on the right. This is the key thing, I think, to get our heads around. The strategic aim of modern fascism is not to take power Hitler-style. In a way, they've got a more mature and reasoned strategy. They want a, a global ethnic civil war, which destroys the multi-ethnic and diverse nations and states and reshapes the world into ethno-states preferably at the same time reversing historical progress to a pre-modern stage i.e. pre-democratic, pre-feminist, pre-1789 from which no new modernity can emerge. That's fascism. If you read Alexander Dugin, if you read all the followers of Julius Evola all the, all the kind of Tolkien-length bullshit books written by modern fascist theorists, that's, that's what it is. Guillaume Fay is another one in, in, in France. But that's their long-term strategy, and they're prepared to wait for it because they see the rise of great power rivalry combined with climate change as the long-term conditions that will create the ethno-state and the civil war. But in the short term... Their strategy is to put in power authoritarian, populist, right-wing politicians like Trump who will erode democracy and the rule of law, who will consciously use the right as a mass base and allow them, the fascists, to operate in the political space created. That, I think, is the, is the important concept we have to understand, whether you're in politics, whether you're a lawmaker, whether you're an academic, that's what modern fascism wants. Once we understand that, we can understand not only the relationship between Trump and the Proud Boys, but that between Narendra Modi and the Sang Parivar in India, Bolsonaro and the crazy fascist poseurs like Sarah Winter marching on the Supreme Court, throwing fireworks in the, into the windows, between Matteo Salvini in Italy and Casa Pound, so Mas Salvini wears the hoodie of Casa Pound's fashion brand, Vladimir Putin and the Russian extreme right. The populists are using them as auxiliaries, but here's the head bender. During the final phase of Trump's administration, America went further than any other country, India, Brazil, Russia, Hungary, in cementing an open and clear joint venture between a right-wing populist leader and fascism. And I think it's justified now to say Trump himself morphed from a classic authoritarian populist, the representative of a faction of the US bourgeoisie. This is what I wrote about in, the, in Clear Bright Future in a chapter called The General Theory of Trump. I think that was right at the time, but, but certainly by the time of that ludicrous Republican convention held in the White House, when basically it's just Trump and his family, he's now someone whose dynastic survival strategy was to mobilise the far right for violence. And here's another jaw-dropping thing. 
Bolsonaro had to create a party from scratch out of ex-military junta people and far-right YouTube stars. Modi had to create the BJP over 20 years as a potential ruling party. But Trump, in the face of just five years, has turned the Republican Party, the party of Abraham Lincoln, into a willing host and vehicle for fascism. Before we go any further, let's explore some of the definitional complexities that have led to confusion among the left and among journalists trying to cover fascism or even to confront it with little experience of the history of it all. There are three sources of understanding about fascism that I think people rightly reach for when they think about the far right. One is political science. So if you look at the European Commission website, you'll see a classic political science definition that says, OK, right-wing populism over here respects the rule of law, works within democracy, doesn't like the results, and sees the will of the people as more important than the Constitution or of universal human rights. But the extreme right are different. They want to overthrow democracy and they'll use violence to do it. And that's the difference. Well, another source of definitions has been academic history and sociology. I mean, when anti-fascists made a list in America of definitions of fascism, and the last time I counted it on the Twitter thread, it was something like 27. Many different. What's the reason for this? Since the 1970s, historians working in comparative fascist studies or in the disciplines of political religions have been engaged in a definition war over how to summarise fascism as an ideal type. An ideal type is a model originally created by the sociologist Max Weber that, that never existed in reality, but which we're supposed to use to compare political phenomena like Mussolini's PNF or Hitler's NSDAP. The winner in the definition wars by the 1990s was, by many people's standards, Roger Griffin, the UK academic, with his impenetrably brief definition. Quote, fascism is a political ideology whose mythic core, in its various permutations, is a palingenetic form of populist ultranationalism. Palingenetic means rebirth. In my book, I kind of take this apart and critique it. I'm not going to go into it all now, but really the big problem with academic definitions is definitions are not explanations. They're research tools for academics. A third source of understanding is, quite rightly, Marxism. Marxism took 16 years to come to a stable definition of fascism by 1935, after first completely underestimating it and then identifying it wrongly as identical to social democracy and liberalism and classifying it simply as an attack dog for the whole bourgeoisie. To get out of that impasse, in 1935, Georg Dimitrov, the Bulgarian communist, persuaded the Comintern to adopt the following definition. Fascism is the power of finance capital itself, so a wing of capitalism. It is the organisation of terrorist vengeance against the working class and the revolutionary section of the peasantry and intelligentsia. And then it's followed by a whole series of what it's not. So it's not a middle class phenomenon. It's not a phenomenon outside class. In my book, How to Stop Fascism, I try to create and lay the basis for something more synthetic, 
something better than Marxism, better than political science, better than academic history. Uh, because I think historical materialists have to take the whole history of class society and human psychology as our starting point to understand fascism, not just finance capitalism, not just palingenic ultranationalism, and certainly not just attitudes to democracy and violence. And the reason I want to make this a theoretical battle, not just a practical thing, is that the labour movements we are following, the the, in the 1930s, the German labour movement, both the communists and the social democrats, they actually had an independent source of political theory. You know, the main debates on the nature of German Nazism were carried out in the theoretical journal of a trade union federation called Die Arbeit, Work, where professors and activists and lawyers could work across their different disciplines in a free and open and, importantly, non-deferential way that we can't today. Because how many young activists are allowed to say that most academic history is wrong about fascism? The professors teaching them, the, the tenured academics they're meant to look up to, or even uh, supervising their PhD theses, they're not. So I want an activist theory of fascism, not one handed down by academics who, by their discipline and training, have to construct abstract or ideal type models and therefore remain detached from the question of what is and what ought to be. And certainly not one handed down by the European Commission or one drawn up by Georgi Dimitrov in 1935 uh, for reasons of saving face, having handed power to fascism by failing completely to uh, fight it properly. For me, and this is something I've elaborated in How to Stop Fascism, the left's theory of fascism has to be expanded beyond class dynamics. For certain, Nazism and Mussolini's fascist movements were a practical response to the possibility of proletarian revolution. But as Antonio Gramsci pointed out, they weren't a, resp a response to the imminent threat of revolution, but the consequence of defeat. The mistake orthodox Marxists made in the 20s and 30s was to see fascism only in its function as a reaction to proletarian revolution and to see only its practical usefulness for the ruling class. They were very re reluctant to see fascism, even as a semi-autonomous movement of the middle classes, very reluctant to accept that German farmers or the Italian urban middle class even had a future separate from the proletariat, let alone the ability to stage a revolutionary independent critique of capitalism. And they totally left untheorised an insight Gramsci had in 1921 at the height of the Squadrismo campaign in the Italian countryside. But for me, this is the key insight. In an article called Elemental Forces, Gramsci writes that fascism, quotes, can only partially be interpreted as a class phenomenon, as a movement of political forces conscious of its real aim. Quotes, it has spread, it has broken every possible organisational framework, it has become an unchaining of elemental forces which cannot be restrained under the bourgeois system of economic and political government. Fascism is the name of the far-reaching decomposition of Italian society. By the way, what a writer it, uh, Gramsci was, even in translation. There's a lot more to do 
But once you admit that fascism is only partially a class phenomenon, a historical materialist must ask, well, what's the basis for the other part that's not driven by class dynamics? And if you don't look at fascism as a conscious project of a class or a subsection of a class, but as what Gramsci called it, a process unleashed by the collapse of social structures within capitalism, then you don't become so obsessed with what class does it represent in the narrow sense that obsessed and unfortunately confused Marxists in the 30s. So when the left thinks about the people who got fascism right in the 30s, you often hear about Gramsci, Trotsky, Ignacio Salone, although he turned out to be a fascist spy, as we found out uh, belatedly. Uh, what they were all trying to say in their writings is basically fascism ultimately serves the bourgeoisie, but in the short term, it can be an expression of middle class despair, can act autonomously from the elite and even reshape the elite and reshape bourgeois society. Now, that insight is really useful when we look at the Capitol Hill mob. There's a lot of ex-cops, ex-military, many people in financial trouble, and of course, many violent misogynists. But for me, the most profound insight in the 30s came from two Marxists who are usually treated as, well, interesting but marginal. Wilhelm Reich and Eric Fromm. Both were Freudians, but these were no chaise-long anti-fascists. Reich, in particular, in Berlin, was an active member of his local Antifa group in Charlottenburg and did agitational work aimed at breaking young people and women away from Hitlerism and occasionally stood on a balcony with milk bottles preparing to throw them at the Sturmabteilung. So Reich explains fascism as the product of what he called the fear of freedom. It's a, a phrase that from later used as the title of a book, but Reich invents it. In fact, they probably invented it by discussing it and discussing their patience and their interventions into the class struggle. What triggers the fear of freedom for Reich is not simply the fear of socialism or proletarian revolution or cultural antipathy by middle class people towards working class culture and solidarity. But it's something bigger. It's being placed in a situation where freedom and fascism are the only alternatives. You don't have to buy Wilhelm Reich's conclusion that fascism is the product of the family and the social and national hierarchies the family creates, although the prevalence of violent misogyny and power worship on the chance is a pretty good clue. But you could accept the wider point Reich makes, that fascism draws on human social structures that are deeper than class structures. Alienation, self-oppression, racism, xenophobia, misogyny, fascism mobilises them all because, and here's my one-line definition of fascism for what it's worth, fascism is the fear of freedom triggered by a glimpse of freedom. Dimitrov says in his famous 1935 definition, Fascism is not a power standing above class. And that's correct. You know, we're not looking at here something that's superstructural. It's a very deeply embedded thing inside capitalism. But in a way, you could describe it as emerging partly from phenomena that sit metaphorically below class in the way human exploitation, oppression and alienation have been constructed. And the family is one of them. Psychosis is another. 
Psychiatry, I think, is a valid, uh, as is behavioural science, uh, discipline for understanding why people become fascists. Not only It's not only politics and economics. And I think this is what solves the mystery that the left has created for itself. Why are we seeing fascism when there's no strong proletariat, especially in America, and when the bourgeoisie doesn't want it, or indeed need it, and when all economic downturns are not uh, producing Weimar Republic-style 25% unemployment, but are being solved or ameliorated by central bank money printing. Why? For me, the answer is because we've glimpsed freedom. 2011, from Occupy to the Arab Spring, was a glimpse of freedom. Black Lives Matter and Me Too and the Gezi Park uprising in Turkey. These were glimpses of freedom. Fridays for the Future, Extinction Rebellion, glimpses of a, a carbon-free future. Through networked technologies, through universal human rights, through automation and decarbonisation and the protection of the Earth's biosphere, we can see a pathway to a time when there'll be no reason to work, no reason to starve, no reason to be unequal, no reason for one human being to oppress another. In short, no class society and no capitalism. And a lot of people like capitalism and a lot of people, unfortunately, like class society. The philosopher Alasdair MacIntyre, when he was still a Marxist, wrote that class society is so good at repressing human potential that we never really know how close freedom is or how short a leap we might have to make to achieve it. So what you've got in the USA, if you look closely at the misfits and the nut jobs who Trump persuaded to storm the Capitol, is a bunch of people who understand that their lifestyle, their identity, their self, is entirely reliant for its survival on a hierarchical structure that has to come crashing down in order for the planet to remain habitable and in order that black Americans can exercise their inalienable human rights. Because climate change, I think, does demand the end of capitalism. And in this generation, this generation of black people in America will accept nothing less than emancipation from structural and systematic racism. And women, too, are not going back to the pre-1960s, pre-pill, Doris Day era, no matter how many fascist fangirls adopt lifestyles that re-enact that era. And that's what was motivating the Capitol Hill mob. And though serious law enforcement could have and should have kept them out of the corridors of the Senate, and it remains to be seen why they did not. The wider problem is that this mass psychology of fascism, this fear of freedom, is much more widely accepted than among those who stormed the capital. What's happening is this. Ordinary and historic prejudices are being backfilled by new theories. QAnon is one. White genocide and the great replacement theory are others. But if you dig deep, you'll find the full panoply of Nietzschean bullshit, the full agenda, history as a cycle, amorality, man-superman biological hierarchies, racist pseudoscience, and at its depth, self-pity. What I continually say to lawmakers who are terrified of admitting that their voters might be racist and indeed theoretical racists is that unless you confront the psychological and philosophical roots of this, it will consume you. It will consume me, you, 
your party, my party, bourgeois society, the rule of law and democracy. It's out there in the Facebook groups, in the WhatsApp groups, the Telegram channels. And I support shutting them down where they advocate violence or spread hate speech. But the mass psychology of fascism is out there. And what we need is not just impeachment, not just prosecutions against conspiratorial rioters, not just, but we do need, a purge of law enforcement to root out systematic racism as well as right-wing extremism. We need everybody who calls himself a Democrat or a liberal to become actively anti-fascist. We are all Antifa now. You're listening to How to Stop Fascism with me, Paul Mason, journalist, Marxist, anti-fascist. So to conclude this look at the impeachment of prosecution process, how should the left think about its strategy? Well, obviously this is a debate and I don't have a monopoly on answers. But let's start with this. Just because the Democrats wised up to fascism doesn't mean they're going to make it go away. Lloyd Austin, the new US Defence Secretary, is going to make every commander in the US military give their service men and women a good talking to about extremism. Good. But Weimar Germany did this. They had plenty of strictures against fascism. They jailed Hitler. They even had a two million strong anti-fascist constitutional defence group, the Reichsbanner, uh, which failed miserably. The fascists know that capitalism is in crisis and that the alternatives are a carbon-free future in which nations collaborate or a burning planet with razor wire at the borders and pushbacks in the sea. Their strategy is to wait, to build the forces, to destroy the distinction between truth and lies, to immerse the mind space of Western society with this fascist bullshit theory and to exploit the leniency and inconsistency and hypocrisy of liberal democracy. Faced with that, what do we call people who choose to burn, who choose the razor wire, who call for migrants and refugees to be sunk in the English Channel and ultimately who fantasise about an ethnic civil war and the end of modernity? What do we call them? One of the big problems with classic Marxism is that because it boycotted moral philosophy, it had no theory of evil. But the working class did have a moral philosophy. We called it class consciousness. And as I wrote in Clear Bright Future, it was essentially a virtue ethic about what does a good society look like and what does a good person in that society look like and how should they behave. The workers, in other words, had a moral philosophy. Whatever Marx said about moral philosophy... And the short version of it, which I learned from my father and grandfather and my mother and grandmother, is that a good person does not look like a fascist. Fascists are evil. My granddad, who was a devout Christian, loathed communism and once threw a book into the fire because it had a swear word printed on the first page. He thought they were so evil that the first time he saw one, one of Mosley's black shirts in the 30s, he picked him up and threw him through a chip shop window. And for American listeners, a chip shop window is a large piece of plate glass. So we're in an existential fight, not just the labour movement and the left, though, as I'll explore in another episode and in the book, we are first on the list for annihilation. But in case you haven't noticed, the fascists also really hate liberals. 
In fact, I would say they hate liberals with a passion stronger than they hated Italian liberalism in the 20s or the Catholic Centre Party in Germany in the Weimar Republic. Hannah Arendt called fascism the temporary alliance of the elite and the mob seeking access to history even at the price of destruction. That's a great description, but let's unpack it. It's an alliance of elite people like Trump, Josh Hawley, Steve Bannon and the My Pillow guy with the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo Boys and the Oath Keepers and thousands of MAGA people and Anons and Groypers. But it is temporary. If Trump had pulled off the Supreme Court challenge or, or suppressed votes in Georgia and Arizona uh, well enough, he would have said once again to the Proud Boys, stand back and stand by. You're the auxiliaries. Now, Arendt says access to history. I think a better way of putting it, it, it would be that what fascists want is the reversal of, the histori of historical progress. And a moment comes when sections of the elite also want that. When she says, even at the cost of destruction, let us remember that as a result of science denial and conspiracy theory, the USA under Trump saw hundreds of thousands of people die in a single year from the coronavirus. You know, when we think about the Nazis and their, their urge to self-destruction, let us remember that that wasn't a unique German or Nazi or 1930s thing. So going forward, we can't expect the far right to stand down and stand by anymore. They're going to wage a four-year insurgency against the Biden administration. The site for that insurgency right now is the GOP itself, the Republican Party, where the actual forces of mainstream conservatism are trying to fight back, but are very weak. Because the allies of fascism and the radical populists and the far-right money is actually in control of the party. Let's understand the attraction of the far-right for the GOP senators who are refusing to impeach Trump. Modern right-wing conservatism, which is not fascism, has painted itself into a corner as neoliberalism collapsed. It can't accept as legitimate any government that will uphold human, universal human rights, uphold the rules-based global order, use the state to protect and provide for people against climate change risk and pandemics and long periods of unemployment and disruption. So the conservative right has begun to see and to frame all non-conservative governments as illegitimate. This is something going on independent of what the fascists think or do. It's something that conservatism has created for itself. And as we'll see, it is a very dangerous place to be in if you claim to be a democratic politician, I, 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 a politician who supports democracy. That explains how the self-interest of right-wing conservatism and the self-interest of fascism have converged. So even if you get a smarter authoritarian leadership of the Republicans, somebody like Tom Cotton, the narrative will still be one that incites the far right to resist the lawful presidency of a Democrat, the presidency's orders and its legislation. So Cotton's pulled back from any kind of support for the insurrection. But that doesn't mean he's pulled back to a position of kind of Romney-esque, uh, kind of neocon authoritarian stability. The right, the whole right of the GOP is, is politically unstable. And that's why 126 lawmakers and not just a few nut jobs carrying a Glock into Congress 
supported the Texan lawsuit that would have blocked Biden. Aaron described fascism as the alliance of the elite and the mob, and the only thing we know about in history that has ever defeated such an alliance is an alliance of the centre and the left. The truth of that was demonstrated on Capitol Hill and in the Biden victory, and for me, above all, at the inauguration. Because if you want to know what an alliance of the centre and the left looks like, it looks like Garth Brooks singing on the same platform as Lady Gaga. Just the one of them won't do. And in fact, Gaga did, and it's not the first time she's done it, but Gaga did what the French communists were heavily criticized for doing during the Popular Front era. She sang the national anthem, and she sang it in a, I would argue, a revolutionary way. The gestures and the intonation uh, were all designed to, to recapture the American revolutionary character of, of the Star Spangled Banner. Coming back to the aftermath of what happened on Capitol Hill, I think here's what it means. Anyone who goes down the Jimmy Dore route, sanitising the far right, claiming they've got some kind of progressive critique of the bourgeois state, is tre treading a well-worn path to defeat. Our vital tool in the fight against fascism is the rule of law. And yes, we can critique what law enforcement do and have done, but one of the most powerful things we can do is to demand that they enforce the rule of law. The French Popular Front government, an alliance of communists, socialists and liberals elected in 1936, outlawed all fascist paramilitary organisations, forcing the far right to wait for a Nazi occupation before they could experience power. The Spanish Popular Front, which came to power in the same year, jailed and ultimately killed fascist insurgents not in the name of some left-wing militia, but in the name of the Republic, because they were the state. Yes, the US state is penetrated by far-right extremists. Yes, Lloyd Austin is going to have a tough job rooting them out of the military. But the British experience with the Metropolitan Police shows that if you attack the problem with everything you've got, and they, they didn't, but they, they did something, you can do something about systematic racism in law enforcement agencies. That's going to be harder in the USA because of the federal system and the separation of powers and, and basically, of course, the power of racist uh, influence inside the Democrats, for no, if nothing else. And there may be some states where the rule of law is severely fragile. I, I certainly experienced that myself in Arizona when I visited and interviewed Joe Arpaio. But nobody is arguing against the right of self-defense. Uh, nobody's arguing against Portland-style mobilizations. It's just that the experience of the Weimar Republic and Austria and Italy all say the same basic thing, that on their own, mobilizations don't win. You have to capture the state. You have to impose the rule of law against fascism. I'm afraid that was the only way it was crushed, where it was crushed, even temporarily, in the 1930s. And that's why impeaching Trump is important. 
The big remaining mystery for me, which hasn't come out at this trial, is why didn't the fascist hardcore, who had the cops on the run, actually try to take the ballots or kidnap Nancy Pelosi or all the other evil stuff that they were fantasizing about, which AOC has quite rightly said she was terrified of happening. They fantasize about this stuff every day on the chans and already from the from the FBI uh, and prosecution documents, we can see that that's what they were talking about in the conspiracy uh, process. For me, the answer of why did they stall has to be they were waiting for something else. They were waiting for somebody else to act. And it's no mystery who that somebody else must have been. They were waiting for the counterstroke, the alto golpe, as it's called in Latin America, the declaration of martial law by the president. That's what all templates for self-coups involve. You declare a state of emergency, you deploy troops, declare martial law, and then you suspend the legislature, and sometimes habeas corpus, and indeed the constitution. That's what Trump is said to have discussed with Flynn and with Sidney Powell and others on the day he calls for the demo in mid-December. That, surely, has to be the subject of further investigation, not just impeachment, but a criminal investigation. In another episode, I'll discuss the practical lessons and the pitfalls of the Popular Front tactic in the 1930s. But the starting point, whatever the outcome of the impeachment trial, has to be from the liberal centre to the far left, we are all Antifa, or as the Americans say, Antifa, now. Thanks for listening. Please share this podcast. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Paul Mason News on Twitter. And please pre-order my book, How to Stop Fascism, History, Ideology, Resistance, published by Alan Lane in Britain later this year. See you again. <laughs>